Amen. You may be seated. And if you have a Bible, you can open up to Daniel chapter 1. We will be there in just a few minutes. My name is John, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Union. And since it is the fifth Sunday of the month, we have family worship. So kids, we're glad you're here. Welcome. Even if you're not necessarily the most glad that you're here. I know I'm not as fun as Miss Beth or... Miss Carolyn, or some of your teachers, Mr. Silas, but I'm glad you're here. So, we're going to do our best to um, get through this semi-quickly, and as I promised, uh, we'll do Silly News Sunday. That's become a tradition, right? I haven't brought pictures. Uh, As far as announcements go, we only have a couple. Number one is that this coming Wednesday night at 6 o'clock here at the Adult Center, we're going to do our quarterly prayer meeting, and so that is from 6 to 7 o'clock, just the time to... Slow our hearts, recenter on Jesus, pray with and for one another, for our community and the world. And so we'll be doing that this Wednesday, June 1st, 6 to 7 o'clock here at the Adult Center. And then since it is transitioning to summertime, I believe we have a youth summer camp coming up. And there's also a family camp available at Prescott Pines. If you want any information about either of those, see Anthony or Bree and Jeff can raise their hands. They work at Prescott Pines, and so they're helping facilitate all of that. So... Uh, That's the long and short of announcements. We'll move to Silly News Sunday, and then I will read from Daniel chapter number one. So here's what I saw this week. Um, It was from the New England Animal Medical Center. They shared a post on Facebook detailing uh, a bearded dragon named Randy. He got his head stuck inside a SpongeBob SquarePants toy. And they said it's the cutest emergency they ever had. So there's Randy, he got his head stuck, they took him to the ER, and we're not laughing at you, Randy, they said, we're laughing with you. Picture shared in the post show, Randy sitting in a box with his head stuck inside a toy pineapple, vets got to work to free Randy from the toy. The pineapple didn't make it, but Randy is back home happily laying in the sun. So there you go, there's Randy all better now. Just another reason why to not have a pet. One of them, got it. <laughs> uh, I'm not a big, I, I love animals. I, I despise animal ownership, personally, personally, personally. So I'm working things out. Daniel chapter 1, I will read verse 8 through 21 and then we'll get to it. Sound good, church? All right. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. 
As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. Among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is God's word. Let's pray. And so, Father, as we look to your word today, we ask for your help to see, to understand um, who you are, how you've worked throughout history, and how you're leading and guiding us here today. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing in your sight, God, our strength and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you want a title, it, both, it starts with E, Engaging Exile is where we're going today. Engaging Exile. But first I want to ask, and kids, feel free to shout out, what is the book of Daniel typically known for? Anybody? Sawyer. Lion's Den, okay, there's a den, it's full of lions. What else? Anyone else? Scott Ritchie, what's it known for? Shadrach, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, Lincoln? Huh? Beastie Boys. Beastie Boys. Yeah, I don't know if it's known for that, Paul. <laughs> Lincoln? The Friary Furnace? Prophecies, okay, very good. I don't even need to teach, let's just pray and go home. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'd say Daniel's known for dens, uh, for diet. There's the Daniel plan book, which didn't read it, but it's really funny that this whole, you know, it's Rick Warren and a couple doctors write the Daniel plan. What's funny is if you notice in chapter one, they ate vegetables. They got fatter, not skinnier. But hey, they made millions anyways, whatever. Uh, so dens, diet, dreams, prophecy, which leads to dot connecting. Okay, these all starts with D2. Um, or... Most popularly, just complete dismissal. People don't read Daniel or the Old Testament or the Bible at all. What Daniel's actually about, if, if I were to put it in a sentence, is the faithfulness of God in exile. And, and my hope and prayer is that for myself, I was reminded this week, and Eric and I have had these conversations, that words tend to become rote and cliche. Faithfulness is one of them. Oh, the Lord is faithful. That's a word that if you've grown up in church and here you are today, you're going to hear me say it. And it's a word that just can lose its meaning over time. What that word faithful means is that God keeps his word. God does not abandon. God is there even and especially within exile. God is present. His promise is still true. He's still active among it. And through God's faithfulness, that can be the lens through which we then engage Exile, Not the other way around trying to earn or search for or find necessarily God's faithfulness, but from seeing God's faithfulness, we then can engage exile well. The simple breakdown of uh, Daniel is really one through six is Daniel and his friends. I guess that's the reference you were making, Paul, right? The Beastie Boys, I guess you could. Okay. Daniel and the Beastie Boys. It's more like the Fiery Boys, um, but whatever. Daniel and his friends, 1 through 6, and then 7 through 12 are more visions, prophecy, that kind of stuff. But if, if you watch the Bible Project video, and I'm going to lift some stuff from them, there's more artistry to be found. In chapter 1, it's written in Hebrew. And Daniel's one of the few books that jumps from Hebrew to Aramaic and then back to Hebrew. And in chapter 1, which we read part of, we have this introduction to a, a young man and his friends. 
And, and out of a trust and a resolve to follow after God and his faithfulness, they then live a certain way that could come with a great cost. It, it says that Daniel was resolved in his heart. He made up his mind. He, he kind of put the line in the sand that he wasn't going to cross over towards living uh, like God's people weren't supposed to live. If you want some good resolutions, you can just Google Jonathan Edwards resolutions. He is known, I think he wrote out 70 resolutions that he would reread every single week about how he wanted to live in the midst of the world. And there's some interesting ones and some really good ones as well. And really the question of Daniel, uh, and I'm, I'm modifying this for Daniel, is, is you can take a guy into exile, but can you get exile into the guy? Right? It's kind of you take a guy out of the hood, but can you take the hood out of the guy? Or the fight out of the dog, the dog in the fight, that sort of thing. The first chapter shows that Daniel and his friends are going to trust and honor God, even if that means death. And through that, God blesses them and multiplies their influence. But we have to note that even though they were relieved of this, it didn't mean smooth sailing for the rest of their journey. It wasn't smooth sailing. I mean, think about how dicey that was. The guy's like, okay, I'll let you have the test, but if it doesn't work out, you're going to die. Or you're going to be forced into this certain kind of living. Then from chapter 2 through 7, you get an Aramaic chiasm. Now, we talked about chiasms in one of the previous books. It was Esther, I believe. And so, kids, we're adding a fancy word into your pocket. Everybody say chiasm. Very good. I stole the Bible Project image. The, the Union Church Graphics Department was a little busy this week, so I had to just plagiarize from the Bible Project. But you'll see, in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream in which he's about to kill all of his magicians, all of his enchanters. He seems like a guy with a bit of an anger problem. And so he has a dream. It's not good. The wise men can't figure it out. They're about to be killed. Daniel steps up and God reveals to Daniel and then Nebuchadnezzar the dream. Daniel's praised and, and he just says God is sovereign in this dream over all. Like your kingdom's here, but God is sovereign over it all. He interprets the dreams that kingdoms will rise and fall, but God ultimately will reign. And through that, he's promoted and honored. Then in chapter 3, there's an idol for worship. You either... Praise in, in this idol and fall down or die. And again, Daniel and his friends refuse. They're not going to be swept up. And so they get thrown into the fiery furnace. And I find this to be one of the most fascinating lines in the Old Testament. Because these men, in chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So they speak about the power and ability of God. But then this. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They are able to say, God is able, God is powerful. Again, the word we talked about earlier, God is faithful. But we don't know exactly how this is going to pan out. So he's able to, and we believe he will. But if not, that doesn't necessarily change a thing. They, they recognize that they could not trace exactly how God would work. It's not like a genie. And so God spares. It doesn't always go that way. Read Hebrews 11, and there's this whole host of people who were martyred for their faith. 
You see that throughout church history? But it shows the, law, the Lord does honor obedience and trust places not only in actions, uh, but outcomes in God's hands. That's something I've had to learn a very difficult way in my life. To not just trust my actions into God's hands, but the outcomes. Because sometimes you do the right thing and you get the wrong result. Sometimes you go down the right path and it doesn't pan out the way you had anticipated or even some ways in which it seems as though the Bible would promise obedience. Maybe I'm alone in that. Eric has done that too. I prayed. I thought through. I did this. And it doesn't result in how you thought it would. What do you do then? Well, you, you entrust not only your actions but the outcomes into God's hands. Then, chapter 4 and 5, there's this juxtaposition of Nebuchadnezzar's pride and his son Belshazzar's pride. Say that ten times fast. One confrontation leads to humiliation. The other, in, in repentance, the other leads to ruin. The difference is this, and we should take it to heart. What happens when we're confronted? Let us learn repentance. There's another test in chapter 6. Again, for prayer and obedience, is Daniel going to not pray? Is these uh, satraps, these kind of uh, regional leaders that tried to get him in trouble, is he going to pray? He opens up its windows, he's obedient, he prays, and it shows dependency on God uh, might lead to death, but that is better than disobedience. That results in the lion's den and deliverance, followed by another dream of more beasts and kingdoms. But there's in this, Daniel chapter number 7, a promise of one who would come. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should, sur should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. From chapter 7 then through 8, chapters 8 through 12, it's then written in Hebrew, more visions and prayers, and, and there's a lot of uh, discussion, some disagreement over what those chapters are all about. Sorry, I'm not going to get into it, because one, it's family worship and there's limited time. And, and two, again, I'm going to, to borrow a little bit from the Bible Project. Part of the disagreements around this, are these visions pointing to their time? Are there visions pointing to Jesus' time? Or are the visions pointing to, quote-unquote, our time or, or the last days? What are they pointing to? And I think the best answer is yes. Yeah. That's right. yeah. yeah. It's, and I heard John Piper talk about, like, when you see these visions and prophecies, it's, it's always kind of like a range of mountains in that it's difficult to discern how much space is between mountain ranges. If you see a mountain range, it's like, there's one there, I think there's one beyond, and maybe another. And, and it's impossible to see how far apart these are from the human eye, from the naked eye. And, and so there are degrees in which it is talking to those people then. You see the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra and Nehemiah. There are aspects absolutely that are pointing to Jesus' coming and him being the one that will rule and reign. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, right? And then if you read the book of Revelation, you go, oh, and there's the kingdom to fully and finally one day be realized and ushered in. So we won't get into the nitty-gritty other than just going... It's a little bit of a cop-out. Maybe one day we'll get into Daniel and do a deep dive, but yes, it all points to then Jesus and the future. 
that God will keep his promise to rule and reign over all kingdoms. And again, we see that in Jesus who enters, who refers to himself again and again and again. His favorite title is the Son of Man, in which we are introduced to that in Daniel chapter 7. And what the Bible Project says, and I I love this, that Daniel gives a pattern and a promise. The, The pattern is this, that rebellion turns people and nations into beast-like figures. And so, again, the the writer of Revelation uses that imagery again and again of a beast in in kingdoms that uh, dehumanize because that's the essence of sin. What sin does in an individual and in a society ultimately is dehumanizing. The the pattern of sin leads to beast-like outcomes, Psalm 73 says so much where Asaph, the writer, says uh, in his sin he was like a beast before God. When humans attempt to grasp the glory that is only due to God, this God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, it leads to dehumanizing circumstances. So the pattern is that sin leads to beast-like qualities in life in a society But the promise is that God will confront and God will conquer and God gives a way out. That God will be the one who restores what is broken. And the tension that Daniel and his friends face and the tension that God's people have always faced is that there's this place between uh, God's promise of making all things new, of bringing his kingdom fully and finally, and where they find themselves in that tension of the in-between. You see this in Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abram all the way up to the book of Revelation. Every single period of time throughout all of history, God's people have found themselves in that tension. How do they engage exile well? Well, the call for the church is discipleship. Quote Stanley Hauerwas in his book, Resident Aliens, he said, we would like a church that again asserts that God, not nations, rules the world. And the boundaries of God's kingdom transcend those of Caesar. And the main task of the church is the formation of people who see clearly the cost of discipleship and are willing to pay the price. There's a ton there that could be unpacked. But this is what the church is always supposed to be about, discipleship in the midst of a society. Discipleship that looks to follow God's kingdom, not the kingdom of the world. That's what we're after as a church. And so kids, you go, why do we go to church every single Sunday? Discipleship. We're learning the way of Jesus. Families, what are we to be about? Discipleship. Teaching our kids the way of Jesus in a world that is hostile to it. And there's always tensions throughout history. We've talked about this before. The pendulum swings between the church being syncretistic and separatist. Syncretism is just like them all. Let's just fit in. There's no real difference that uh, Jesus makes in the life. Let's just kind of go with the flow. Where separatism is let's pull back. Let's cloister up. Let's not necessarily get infected or affected by the world. What's the call? The call is a faithful presence that lives in the tension. Again, you can trace that theme all throughout Scripture. You see that in the Exodus. You see that in Jeremiah to seek the welfare of the city. You see Jesus calling his people to be salt and light in the midst of the world. If you recall Peter's letter, and if you don't, I'm, that's okay. We will put it up on the screen and I will read it to you. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament uses the same imagery for the church as was used for uh, God's people, the Israelites. But you, church, You're a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what? Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So you see what Daniel and his friends were after in exile, in Babylon, is a very similar call to us today. Now, the privilege that we have had as Christians in this country over the last, I don't know, number of decades has been unique to human history. And, and there's a lot of discussion about where that's going and, and how that's all unfolding, whether or not that's lost or gained. We, we aren't experiencing the same kind of persecution as Daniel did or as many brothers and sisters are experiencing all throughout the world. But there seems to be an increasing pressure the temptation, I think, is for us to look at the evil in the world and rail against that rather than look in the mirror and see what God might be doing in our own hearts. Scripture has always looked to shape God's people for flourishing and faithfulness, even and especially when everything is in peril. And what the prophets do, what Jesus did, what Paul, Peter, and the apostles went after was not, again, railing against the world as much as having God's people look in the mirror before they engage the world. Larry Osborne has a book on Daniel, uh, I don't know, Thriving in Babylon, I think it's called, and he says, a father disciplines his own kids, not someone else's. <laughs> Back in the old days, it wasn't that way. So I've heard. <laughs> it's the same in the spiritual realm. God's discipline always begins with those he calls his own. It was true of Israel and it was true of Christians today. Yet for many of us, that can be confusing. At times, those who mock him, deny him, or high-handedly sin seem to do so with impunity. We assume God's judgment should begin with those who do the greatest evil. But it doesn't. It never has. It begins with us. And that's been perplexing to God's people throughout the ages. And that's something that we have to grapple with and come to terms with. And the image that I have in my head is that I need to look in the mirror a thousand times before I point the finger at anybody. And I understand this can be difficult because we're bombarded all day, every day, with headlines, with news about everything that's wrong in the world. And yes, the solution is as simple as Jesus. But the way in which Jesus enters the world in our day is through our lives. And what the world does not need is more angry people spewing venom, but with a religious bent. It needs embodied love. And so Daniel lived in that, saw the sovereignty again, that God ruled and reigned and he would live in light of that. He would trust that God would be faithful to keep his promise, even if that meant his own death. And he lived in that. And so we have to realize that that kind of life, first and foremost, is not automatic. It doesn't just happen. People don't trip into holiness 
and godliness. It's something that must be lived and fought for and followed after in our own lives and heart. It has to come from a resolve. Not to earn God's faithfulness or his sovereignty or his blessing in our life, but it flows from the fact that God has blessed us and promises to keep us and therefore we live a kind of way. The second thing is living in light of the sovereignty of God is always costly. Remember, he's able, yes, but if not, how are we going to then live? Still following after him. And the question that I wrestle with often is, what does that look like and how does that happen today? And so I want to share with you a couple thoughts as we uh, kind of sort of get ready to close. First, uh, five things from David Kinnaman. David Kinnaman is the president of the Barna Research Group. He recently uh, released a book called Faith for Exiles that looks at how resilience is built in God's people in time. And they do a deep dive on, you know, the, the trends of people, especially young people leaving the church after high school. And so if you want that book, it gives some helpful data and, and all that. And this is really the, the sum of the book, these five things, okay? To form resilient resilience in a resilient identity, God's people are called to experience intimacy with Jesus. So that is that you have a personal walk with Jesus, where scripture is a part of that, prayer is a part of that, intimacy with Jesus. Second, in a complex and anxious age, develop muscles of cultural discernment. Third, when isolation and mistrust are the norm, forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. Fourthly, to ground and motivate, motivate an ambitious generation, train for vocational discipleship, meaning uh, many people just want to get rich fast or make a name for themselves. But what we need is insight and discernment of what it looks like to represent Christ well where he's placed us. Not just, oh, you're going to be a pastor or do whatever else, meaningless work. That's not how it is. It's that everyone is called to minister where they are and, and how they interact with the world. Then fifth, curb entitlement with, and self-centered tendencies by engaging in countercultural mission. That is having a, a vision for life that is bigger than your own. So that's David Kinnaman's wisdom from Faith for Exiles and how we can be resilient in a world that is hostile to God and his gospel. And, and I was asking the question as I was re-looking, you know, kind of through the book in those five things, what does that then look like? And what I'd encourage you to do either with your community, your family, for those with kids, with your kids, is to go, what does it look like to follow Jesus today? Meaning, what is the world, how does it actually operate today? And how does Jesus really make a difference? And, and so I'm going to present to you just a handful that came off the top of my head earlier this week in what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. And, and again, this is more of a movement than like a stage or a step or an arrival. And you can imagine probably much more and much better than, than my brain. First, we move from self-sufficiency to dependency. Again, the world is, I got this on my own. I have nobody to help me. It's me, self-centered. Life with Jesus is, is the beginning of that is dependency. I'm not my savior, I'm not my own, I need God's help. That's what prayer is. It's centering in that reality. I don't have this on my own. We need to move from an absence from the world to a presence within it. Again, absence kind of at all levels. The, the world 
the screens, the distraction, everything moves us to just being absent from it all, to being present. Moving from isolation to community. That's how and why we've structured things the way we have around our gospel communities and life together. It moves us from fear to, to love. That comes from uh, one of Paul's letters to Timothy where he says, perfect love casts out all fear. It's not abundant faith or amazing courage. He says, perfect love casts out fear. And so when we are fearful and anxious, it's because we're living out of, outside of the center of God's love, that identity, that protection. When we center ourselves in the reality that we are God's children, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are, John wrote in one of his letters. That reality centers us and drives out fear. We move from fragility to strength. And that's not like injecting PEDs and you know, being all ripped and all that. But from living in the midst of a society and individuality that is so fragile and easily broken to one that's uh, a little less like fine china and a little more like Tupperware. We're called to be, uh, again, having a Jesus kind of strength that then is able to serve. From apathy and indifference to, what did I put up there? Courage, engagement, there's probably better words. From not caring or giving a rip to having courage to engage hard places and hard people. And then finally, from fatalism, it's all going to burn, to hope. Again, really, that comes from where you're deriving your perspective and your wisdom. Because if you only look at social media, if you only look at the news, if you only look at today's politics, I don't know how you can read all, they call it doom scrolling, right? Like the more you scroll, the just lower, more depressed, angry, frustrated. It's terrible. But as you look to God and his word, as you look around and see that God's actually forming a people in small but meaningful and significant ways, if you look again in the mirror and go, I wasn't who I was and I'm not who I should be, but God has me in process and has been faithful and kept me this far. Doesn't that stir up hope? As we come to the table week after week after week, doesn't that do something in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls? That Jesus is still alive. The tomb is still empty. And so we're called to step out in trust today. Again, that's not coming with any guarantees other than God is good, faithful, ruling, reigning, Sovereign and will one day make all things new. And so that's our call to engage exile well. We have what we need for that journey. And I want to close with a quote from Brendan Manning, his book, Ruthless Trust. One of my favorites, reread it last week, and this just has to get baked in my brain. And I want to share it with you, and I'll share it with you again later, again, because it's the best. The way of trust is a movement into obscurity into the undefined, into ambiguity, not into some predetermined, clearly delineated plan for the future. The next step discloses itself only out of a discernment of God acting in the desert of the present moment. The reality of naked trust is the life of the pilgrim who leaves what is nailed down, 
obvious and secure, and walks into the unknown without any rational explanation to justify the decision or guarantee the future. Why? Because God has signaled the movement and offered it his presence and his promise. And so friends, as Daniel had then, we have today God's promise and we have his presence. And that is enough for whatever life throws at us. Let's pray. And so Jesus, we thank you that through the cross and resurrection, we have this good news, that you are ruling, reigning, and will one day return and make all things new. And that in between, we admit that we need your help, we need your hope, we need your spirit to work in our lives, and so we ask that this morning you would refresh us and renew us with that reality. God, a lot of us come into this room beat down, over busy, tired, exhausted. And we pray that you would meet us here. For these families represented, that you, God, would help us to uh, have a vision of your kingdom and what it looks like to uh, be parents and be kids that are following after you in all things. And so we need your help. And we thank you that it is freely available in our Savior and friend, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.